The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Grant Castleberry of Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 4. We are continuing our study of the gospel of John, and I'm going to read verses 43 to the end of the chapter. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is God's holy word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would feed your sheep through the word of God, that we would understand it by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we wouldn't just understand it, but that we would be changed by it, and that we would apply its truth in our lives. We ask all these things for Christ's sake. Amen. The Greek word that's used for sign is simeon. And that's what this is about. It's about this second sign that Jesus performed. That's what verse 54 says. This was now the second Simeon, the second sign that Jesus did when he came from Judea to Galilee. And it's really important that we understand the significance of the signs that Jesus performs in the gospel because they're very important. In fact, you could say that the first section of John is called the book of signs, the book of signs, because it's 
seven signs, one after the other. And those seven signs are the turning of the water into wine. That's John 2. We've seen that. The second one is the one here in this passage, the healing of the nobleman's son. The third, which we'll see in the weeks to come, is the healing of the paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda in Jerusalem. The fourth is the feeding of the 5,000 near the Sea of Galilee. The fifth is when Jesus walks on water. The sixth is when Jesus heals the man born blind in John chapter 9, again in Jerusalem. And then the seventh is when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And of course, if you count the resurrection, that would be the, the eighth sign that Jesus performs. But that's uh, another story for another day. Now, uh, the word Simeon, it's the Latin word signum comes directly from the Greek word. And from the Latin word signum is where we get our English words sign, signal, signature, insignia. Think about uh, a rank on your sleeve. Uh, it's something that represents something else. It, it's, uh, it's an emblem that has a, a greater reality behind it that it's supposedly supposed to represent. So this is what John says in John 20. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, in other words, these signs, the seven signs that are recorded here, these signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So the purpose of the sign is always so that you can see past the sign to who Jesus is, and the power that he has in order so that you might believe in him and have eternal life. The signs were never given as an end of themselves. The signs weren't done uh, so people could look at Jesus as some sort of spectacle. The signs were always given to lead to faith. The signs are recorded not so that we would praise the sign, but so that we would believe in Jesus, the sign giver. The signs were used to authenticate the message. That's why the signs were given. Uh, Jesus was giving revelation as the Son of God, and the signs were a testimony to that fact. So here's the implication of that. The most important thing was the message. The most important thing is what the signs represent, not the signs in and of themselves. So the first sign, like I said, was the changing or the turning of the water into wine at a wedding in Cana. Now, Cana is up in the region of Galilee. The region of Galilee is the northern region of Israel around the, the Sea of Galilee. And after Jesus performed that miracle, uh, he began what is called the Judean ministry. If you read the, the Gospels of Mark, Luke, and Matthew, they do not include uh, this miracle, nor do they include the Judean ministry. But Jesus, remember, goes down into Jerusalem. He clears the temple, and then while He's in Jerusalem, 
he does other miracles, John says, that are not recorded uh, anywhere else. So, this is uh, John 2, 23. It says, now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, listen carefully to this, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So, many believed in his name when they saw the, the, the miracles that he was doing in Jerusalem. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Literally, the same Greek word. He did not believe in them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, Jesus saw that people were entrusting themselves to him in a way that wasn't true saving faith. They were just attracted to the miracles. That was it. That he gathered a big crowd because people were uh, amused not because they believed, and Jesus knew what was in their hearts, so He didn't entrust Himself to them. So, what follows these miracles in Jerusalem is what some scholars call the year of popularity. His first year of ministry is the year of popularity where people are really fascinated about these rumors and and, and about the, the miracles they've seen. Because Jesus' signs were visible to the Jews in Jerusalem, and what would happen is, since this was the Passover feast, all the Jews in Judea would come up to Jerusalem. I say up because Jerusalem is the highest place of elevation, so even if you're traveling south, people would say we're going up. All of the Jews would go to Jerusalem, and that's where they saw the miracles that Jesus was performing. And so, after that Passover feast, Jesus continued to minister in the south, in Judea. And it says at the beginning of John 4, if you look at the first three verses of John 4, it says, now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus Himself did not baptize but only His disciples, He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. In other words, his popularity was reaching a scorching height. The Pharisees knew who he was, and so Jesus embarked into Samaria. And in Samaria, he had one of the most remarkable ministries of his entire uh, teaching uh, career, if you will, during those three years. Because what happens in Samaria is many people believe in him because of the message. It's really remarkable. If you look at verse 39 of John 4, it says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony, the woman at the well that he, in, he had encountered, when she said, He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know, look at this phrase, that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So they believed Jesus because of His message, and they believed that He was the Savior of the world. It was really a remarkable harvest, and probably maybe one of the, um, the high points of all of Jesus' ministry because really it's kind of downhill from here because so many people believed in Jesus, as we're going to see, just because of the signs, and they didn't really trust Him in their heart. But the Samaritans did 
but Jesus know that he is to go to the lost sheep of Israel, that his, his, his work is to go uh, north to Galilee to, to, to preach the kingdom of God to the lost sheep of Israel. So look at verse 43. After the two days, the two days with the Samaritans, he departed for Galilee. Now, like I said, Galilee is that region to the north around the Sea of Galilee, and he would spend in Galilee really the next 18 months. Obviously, he would go down to some of the the feasts in Jerusalem, but he would spend the next 18 months of his ministry ministering in the villages and towns of Galilee. And the first thing I want you to see this morning in this beginning of his Galilean ministry is the problem of signs the problem of signs. You might think, well, aren't signs a good thing? Aren't signs uh, part and parcel of his ministry? Yes, they are, but there's also a problem with them. And Jesus puts his finger on the spot right here in verse 44. Look at verse 44. It says, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. That was a Jewish idiom that referred back to how the Old Testament prophets had been rejected, persecuted, and killed by their own people. Verse 45, so when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast." Now, many think, you know, you look at these two statements, and right from the top, it seems like there's a contradiction, a glaring contradiction. Jesus says, a prophet is without honor in his hometown, and then the very next verse says that the people welcomed him with open arms. And so there's a lot of debate about these two verses and how you reconcile these two verses logically. What does it mean? Jesus says, a prophet's without honor. People don't honor him in his hometown. And then it says, people welcomed him. How, how do we reconcile that? Well, this word he uses uh, to describe his hometown is actually a word that simply means fatherland. Uh, he's talking about, you know, where he's from. So the explanations, uh, there's, there's numerous explanations for this. Let me give you probably the, uh, the top three. The first is that this is a reference to all of Judea and refers to the Jewish people as a whole, that this is a summary statement that Jesus is making about Jesus' ultimate rejection by the Jews. Remember, John says, in the prologue in John 1.11, he came to his own, that would be the Jewish people, and his own received him not. But many commentators will point, will point out that this explanation doesn't seem to square with John's use of the word fatherland. That's not where Jesus was from. Jesus wasn't specifically stated to be anywhere from Judea, although he was, but he was always stated to be from Nazareth or Galilee. Everybody would always say that. And so the second option is that this is a reference to Nazareth. And I think that there's strong evidence for that. You could feasibly say that this is a reference to Nazareth. 
in fact, whenever this word uh, hometown or fatherland is used uh, in the Gospels, it's used six other times, it's always in reference to the little bitty farming village of Nazareth. And the explanation would be is that this is why Jesus chooses to go to Cana instead of Nazareth. Nazareth Nazareth is his hometown. He goes to Cana instead because a a prophet is without honor in his hometown of Nazareth. So, that's a legitimate option, but I think that the context uh, demands another answer, and that's the third option. I'm going to show you, and that's this is a reference to Galilee as a whole, that this is a reference to the region of Galilee. And here's what Jesus is saying. The statement that a prophet is without honor in his hometown is a statement about the way he is received in Galilee. In other words, he's welcomed with open arms, but only on account of the miracles, that people welcome him, but they actually don't believe in him. There's a big difference. In fact, that's literally, if you look at verse 45, what John says. He says, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Now, look at why they welcome him. Having seen at the Passover feast all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So, that, so they welcome him on account of his miracles, right? Now, I want you to see uh, verse 48. Look at verse 48 when he's going to talk to the nobleman momentarily, the official. Jesus says to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. That word you is the Texan y'all. It's the plural. He's not just talking to the official. What he's saying is, in you Galileans, unless y'all see signs and miracles, you don't believe. So he's not just rebuking the nobleman. He's, he's rebuking everyone. He's rebuking all the people that are around. He's, he's saying, look, th- there is a spiritual problem up here. And the spiritual problem is, is that you are obsessed with the signs and the wonders, but you actually don't have the internal reality of faith. That's the spiritual problem. And this problem that the signs create really permeates all of Jesus's ministry. For example, John says in John 6, 2, that a large crowd followed him. Why? Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. When Jesus goes into Jerusalem, Matthew 16, it says the Pharisees came and to test him, they asked him to show a sign from heaven. You know, prove yourself, Jesus. Do a sign, and we'll believe in you. And Jesus responds, Matthew 16, 4, he says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Do you hear that? If you're obsessed with signs and wonders, it, it is an evil and adulterous thing to go after the signs and wonders. The only sign, Jesus says, that I'm going to give you is the sign of Jonah. Do you remember what that was? The resurrection. 
Just as Jonah was in the the belly of a fish for three days, Jesus was going to be in the tomb, the grave for three days, and be resurrected. Even at Jesus' crucifixion, at Jesus' crucifixion, Matthew records in Matthew 27, 42, he, the crowd was walking by on the road or standing at the cross and they were yelling, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. If he is, let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. In other words, even at the crucifixion, they're saying, Jesus, if you just do a sign, if you just do a miracle, if you just climb down from that cross, then we will believe in you, Jesus. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. Faith never follows automatically as a result of a sign. Okay? Faith never automatically follows as a result of the sign. In the Old Testament, remember Moses? How, how many signs did Moses do in Egypt? How many signs did he do? How many plagues were there? Ten. And then they leave Egypt. And then the, the, what happens? The Red Sea parts. They go into the, the desert. What happens? God provides pure water. I mean, there's signs and miracles everywhere. And what happened with the children of Israel? Unbelief. I mean, how do you see these signs and walk in unbelief? God says in Numbers 14, how long will the people despise me and how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I do among them? John says in John 12, 37, he said, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe. They still did not believe. So here's what we need to understand. Jesus came as a preacher. And what did he preach? The kingdom of God. Who's the king? He is. He preached himself. He said, I am the Savior of the world. Believe in me. Trust in me. Trust in my future crucifixion on behalf of sinners. Jesus came preaching a message. And the signs, they're tertiary. They're supposed to validate this message. And so, the, the obsession for signs, you need to understand, is always an obstacle and a hurdle and a stumbling block to true faith. That's why Paul said, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 22, he said, the Jews, what do they want? They demand signs. And the Greeks, they're after head wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Paul, he could perform signs. He was an apostle. He sometimes performed miracles. He said, the Jews, you demand it, you don't get it. You get the message of the cross because that's what the signs are supposed to point to. So that's the problem with the signs, and that really lays the framework now for the entire story. 
And I want you to see now the persistence of the nobleman, the persistence of the nobleman. This man, uh, it says in verse 46, uh, first it says, he, Jesus, came again to Cana and Galilee where he had made the water wine. So he travels up from Samaria into Galilee, probably a distance of about 50 to 60 miles, uh, depending uh, upon how uh, the roads um, were then. And uh, so it would have been a multiple-day journey. He goes just with this probably freshness of spirit, energized by the response in Samaria. He arrives in the town of Cana. Do you remember which one of his disciples was from Cana? Nathaniel. And so, more than likely, they were staying in Nathaniel's home. And then, at that same time, look back at verse 46, at Capernaum, which is on the Sea of Galilee. It's a village right on the the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. There was an official whose son was ill. That word official, some translations translate that word nobleman. Um, You could say literally a royal person. This man most likely had some type of political connection with Herod Antipas. Uh, Herod, you remember, uh, was the guy who killed John the Baptist. Uh, Herod was an immoral, cruel person. Uh, he had married his stepbrother's wife, uh, Herodias. Um, he was the one, do you remember that Pilate sent Jesus to? in the middle of the trial to try and get off the hook, and Herod just mocked Jesus and sent him back to Pilate. So, uh, Herod is uh, an immoral person, and this official more than likely had some sort of political connection uh, to Herod. Some postulate that his name was Chosa, uh, who was Herod's steward, and whose wife, Joanna, became a disciple of Jesus, and you can read about her in Luke chapter 8. But we're not sure who the identity of this man is. Um, But we do know that he is a man of means, that he probably had wealth, and that he knew people, and that he had exhausted everything he could to try and help his sick son. A father, a good father, will do anything to help their child, to rescue their child. And that's, that's not a characteristic of, of Christian parents. That's, that's basically a characteristic of almost all parents, isn't it? They will do almost anything for the safety and well-being of their child. When uh, the kids were much smaller, uh, Grace Anna had this um, women's auxiliary thing at the seminary that she would go to every Thursday night. And I would just, I, I, would, I was happy for her, but it was also dad duty on Thursday nights for me. And I remember one Thursday night, somehow I was in the kitchen cooking, uh, I think macaroni and cheese, and Charles was two years old, and somehow uh, he got locked in the bathroom while I was cooking. And I went and I tried to open the door, and I tried to open the door, and all of a sudden, thoughts started to enter my mind that Charles had fallen in the toilet, and who knows what was happening. And uh, 
and I was looking uh, for a key, couldn't find one. Turns out it was uh, on the, the top of the door <laughs> later, but I didn't see it there. And so what I did, I mean, it was kind of a flimsy door, so I don't want you to think that, oh, man, this is like the Hulk here. But I just punched through the door and just, just punched through the door, basically, until the whole half of the door was off. You know, I'm sure Charles was petrified there in the bathroom. But then I reached over and unlocked the thing and opened it up, got him out of the door. And, uh, you know, of course, Grace Anna came home, and she's like, what did you do? I can't survive without her. And then she pointed out that the key was right there the whole time. But we'll do almost anything, right, to help, help our child. We'll go to any means necessary. And that's exactly what this father does. And if you look at verse 47, uh, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son. Now, again, this reference, come down, these references are elevation references. Uh, so the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. So he's going to be going up in elevation the uh, really 20 miles it takes to get from Capernaum uh, to, Caleb, so, to Cana. So he uh, goes and asks Jesus, and he wants Jesus to come down back to Capernaum to heal his son. And I want you to pause and reflect on this moment and on this fact. If the man's son had not become sick, he would have never sought the Lord Jesus Christ. If he had never sought the Lord Jesus Christ, he would have never believed and trusted in him. The sickness of the son leads to the salvation of the father. The salvation of the father leads to the salvation of the son and the entire family. Hardship, sickness, suffering is often used by God to lead us to the foot of the cross. I can't tell you how many stories I've heard from many of you where it was the crisis moment in your life that the Lord used to lead you to faith in Him. I remember when I was a boy, it was the death of my father in a plane crash. I was a young little boy that God used to spur all the questions in my mind and heart, asking, you know, where is my father? Where is he now? How can I go be with him? All those questions about eternity, God used as a result of that crisis. And that's what God often does, is he uses these sicknesses and hardships in order to bring us where we need to be. J.C. Ryle said this remarkable quote. He said, affliction is one of God's medicines. By it, he often teaches lessons which would be learned in no other way. By it, he often draws souls away from sin in the world which would otherwise have perished everlastingly. Now listen to this. Health is a great blessing, but sanctified disease is greater. 
Prosperity and worldly comfort are what all naturally desire, but losses in crosses are far better for us if they lead us to Christ. Far better for us if they lead us to Christ. The psalmist says in Psalm 46, 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. If you're never in trouble, how will you know God's strength? You see it? God leads you into the valley of the shadow of death in order to show you his hand of grace and mercy. There's an old Puritan prayer in the Valley of Vision. It says this, Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, and that the valley is the place of vision. So if you're walking through a valley this morning, it could be that God is trying to see, trying to get you to see something very important. Himself, His grace, His mercy, His strength, His hand of providence in your life. So don't just wish the affliction away. God can take away the affliction in a moment, but He's having you walk through the affliction so that you'll come to Him and learn His strength and His power and see it displayed. You're in the valley for a reason. Don't wish it away. Learn in the valley. In all of God's providence, He is leading us to something tremendously important, I promise you. Now, to get this man to that, the nobleman to that, he must address his heart. So look at verse 48. He's addressing the nobleman's heart. And, and like we said, really, this is, this is a rebuke on all of the Galileans. Jesus said to him, unless you see the signs and wonders, you will not believe. Uh, that word wonders, it's the only place it's used here in John's gospel, but it just elaborates on the, the word sign. There's no doubt what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about a, a miracle that he does uh, so that people might believe in him. Now, I think it's really fascinating and important to see that Jesus is not nearly concerned about the man's sick child as he is this man's soul. Do you see that? He's not nearly concerned about the health of the child as he is the state of the soul. This rebuke that y'all are seeking me as a prophet, a miracle man, a magician, uh, clearly he sees this man's heart, and, and he, he's, he's basically saying, look, you see me as a miracle worker, and that's all you see me as. And that's an issue. 
because you, you need to see me as the Son of God, the Savior of the world. That's what truly is going to help you, is the salvation of your soul. And that's the perspective that we need to have. How Christ will truly help you is as your Lord and Savior. And as 21st century American evangelicals, we have turned Christ into so many other things than that. Christ has become a picture of tolerance and goodwill. Christ has become a good example of how to show kindness to people. Christ has become a good teacher that tells us how to live. But Christ doesn't want any false perspectives of Him that don't include Him as the Lord and Savior of your heart. That's the most important thing, that you see Him as He really and truly is. Listen, if all Jesus had had wanted to do is come and heal people, He would have healed every child in Galilee and Judea. No, No parent would have had a child die those three years. But a lot of children died. A lot of people still had illnesses. The, the point of the signs Jesus is saying is for you to get to this, for you to believe with all your heart in who I am, to trust me as your Lord and Savior. Well, this rebuke apparently changed this nobleman's perspective because verse 49, the official said to him respectfully, he persists. He says, sir, come down before my child dies. And I think there's a lesson here as well that when we have a need, we must persist. And sometimes you go to the Lord and you ask the Lord, you know, you, you always pray as the Lord taught us in your, in your will. If, if it's your will, let it be done, Lord. You, you pray. And sometimes the Lord, it seems like the Lord is not answering, or he's saying wait, or sometimes it seems for a time that the Lord is saying no, and he's rebuking your motives and, and how you're asking. And if that's the case, sometimes we, God is wanting us to persist and, and to come back to him in prayer. Once I had a Christian ask me, they say, well, once I've prayed for something, does that mean that now it's done and I don't ever pray for that thing again? I said, No. The, the, the example and models of prayer in the Bible are that of persistence, of continually going back. Yes, Jesus rebukes him, rebukes his motive, but, but, but he realizes that it was wrong, but yet he then comes back and says, Lord, uh, w- will you come down and heal my son before he dies? So he persists. So that's the persistence of the nobleman. And, and now I want you to see the power of Jesus the power of Jesus. Look at verse 50. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. Now, this statement is not a prophecy. It's not a prediction. It's an imperative. It's literally an imperative. Jesus spoke this with what must have been tremendous authority because it, we'll see in a moment, the man immediately believed. It, it, it wasn't, go, your son will live. 
it was go. Your son, he's alive. That's the authority by which he spoke. Now, several important things to notice about this statement. First, Jesus has the power to grant life. That phrase, will live, it's one Greek word, two letters, Z, from the Greek verb zao. And what a remarkable little word that is, that Jesus says he has life, he lives. We're so acquainted with the Gospels and and how Jesus heals that often we overlook these things and we diminish them. But we shouldn't diminish this. This is remarkable. Jesus is saying, after all, everything has been exhausted with this child, after the nobleman has sought every possible avenue for his healing, Jesus is saying, in a word, this child now has life. The second thing I want you to notice is that Jesus heals this boy from a distance. From a distance. What did the official or the nobleman ask Jesus to do? He said, I want you to come down and heal him. It was expected that for a miracle to be done, that the miracle worker had to be present. But Jesus doesn't have to be present. He just says a word from 20 miles away, and the boy is healed. It's a long-distance healing. Now, the implication for that for us is so magnificent and amazing. I think we often think, that Jesus is powerless to help us in our lives. Because where is he right now? He's, at, he's ascended at the right hand of the Father. He's, he's beyond the cosmos. We couldn't even find him in a rocket ship. But does that mean that Jesus is powerless to come to the aid of his saints to save lost souls? No. Jesus is just as powerful in able to heal or perform anything that we ask now as he was then. Distance is no obstacle for him. He is the Son of God on high, all-powerful, all-present. He is with us this morning in this room. So when you're walking through the sickness and the suffering, don't, don't think of Jesus as being powerless to help you because He's so far away. Jesus is present by the power of His Spirit, and in one word, if He so wills, He is able to heal. He is able to perform. He is able to bring people into the kingdom of God. He is able to do all that we ask or think. He has power. And so, if the Lord Jesus isn't answering your prayer, it's not because He's powerless to help you. It's because He wants you walking through the trial that you're walking through, and He's going to walk through it with you in order for you to learn exactly what He wants you to learn. What's more important, your sanctification or that your trial end? In Jesus' mind, what's more important, your sanctification or that your trial end? It's your sanctification. His ultimate goal is to conform you into his own image. That's what he's doing. Now, he might relieve you of the trial, relieve you of the sickness. And if so, what's the end goal for that? Your sanctification and his glory. 
And that's what he does here, and, and you're going to see it. Uh, really amazing what, what happens here. Uh, the last thing I want you to see, the principle of faith. Look at verse 50 again. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. So he believes Jesus without the sign. There's no sign. There's no miracle done. That's how you can tell that this man's faith has been born, that this faith has been planted, because he now believes Jesus without the sign. He believes Jesus at his word, and that's genuine faith, friends, that you believe God at his word. Verse 51 As he was going down, again in elevation, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. That word recovering is not a good translation because it suggests that it was a process of recovery. It wasn't. Uh, The the meaning, it's that same Greek word, zao. It it means that he's alive. He's he's living and he's fine. It, It wasn't a process. Verse 52, so he asked him the hour. So, so the nobleman asked the, the servant the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Now, there's a lot of debate amongst the commentaries uh, about whether the seventh hour is the Jewish seventh hour, which would be 1 p.m., or the Roman seventh hour, which is 7 p.m. And, and really, it, it's somewhat inconsequential towards the, uh, the, the whole point of the story. My uh, hunch is that it was the, the Roman time, 7 p.m., because otherwise, I think, uh, if it was 1 p.m., he would have tried to, to go back down to Capernaum in the afternoon that day because he would try to walk that 16 to 20 miles. But the reason why he didn't is probably because it was late in the evening, it was 7 p.m., and that's why it's the next day that the servant comes from Capernaum to tell the nobleman that Jesus is no longer needed because the child has been healed, and why the nobleman leaves from Cana to go back to Capernaum. Look at verse 53. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. Now look at this. This is really fascinating. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. Uh, I say that's fascinating because didn't it already say that he believed Jesus at his word? So earlier, Verse 50, it says that he believed Jesus. And then, again, verse 53, it says he himself believed. So what's going on here? Faith has different stages. In in the New Testament, you have little faith and great faith. You have immature faith and you have mature faith. When Jesus said, your son lives, and it said he believed, I think at that moment he was born again. He believed in Jesus as more than a prophet, more than a a, a sign maker. He believed in Jesus. And then when he talks to the servant and finds out that his son was healed the exact hour, his faith increased. 
Now, did the first time he believed, was that saving faith? Yes, it was. It's not the degree of your faith that saves, it's the fact of faith. You hear that? It's, it's the fact of faith that saves. It's not the degree of faith. But we should all strive to have great faith. Great faith. We should all strive to have faith, period. Now, some of you this morning, I don't know where you are spiritually, what, what has been going on in your walk of life, and you came here this morning, and you might know a lot of things about Jesus, and you might even believe that Jesus is the Son of God. You might believe intellectually in who He is, but you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior in the heart. And that's what Jesus demands of you, that you trust Him in the heart, that you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ so that you will be saved. Don't look at Jesus as simply a wise man, a miracle worker, the greatest of the Jews. Look at Him as your Lord and Savior. Look to Him, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, all who look at the Son in faith will be saved. That's the invitation. Look to Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's what God promises. And just like this nobleman who walked away as a believer, you can walk away this morning from Clifton Avenue, Temple Baptist Church building, Capital Community Church, you can walk away reborn, born again, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. Trust in Christ. Don't put it off. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story of faith and this example of faith of this nobleman and his household. And we pray, Lord, that we would trust you with all of our hearts, that we would trust you in faith because it is faith and faith alone that transfers us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God, and is faith in Christ alone. Christ saves. Christ alone saves. And so, Lord, may we see Christ in all of His glory and all of His greatness and all of His mercy and all of His grace and trust Him with all of our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.